The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going. We've got an amazing show for you on JFK tonight. Sit back in your most comfy chair, relax, put your feet up. This is your time, your hour to take specially for you. The movie is called A Coup in Camelot. It's an award-winning documentary on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's available on iTunes, Amazon Video Direct, Google Play, and Vimeo On Demand. Don't worry about those links, folks. They'll be on the www.nightfrightshow.com website for you. A Coup in Camelot is a powerful examination of compelling new research, exclusive interviews, and critical analysis by the top medical, forensic, and research experts in the country. November 22, 2016 marks the 53rd anniversary of the assassination of the country's 35th president. Five decades later, crucial questions remain about President Kennedy's assassination. This film provides extensive evidence of botched Secret Service protocols, Sapruder film analysis with 6K digital scans, shocking medical evidence revelations, an expert Oswald analysis to uncover the dramatic tale of a coup in Camelot. The researchers featured in the documentary are Dick Russell. He'll be here in three weeks, folks. He's an Oswald expert, and everybody knows his book, who is in the community. The Man Who Knew Too Much, author Vince Palomaro, will be returning next week. Secret Service expert, fans of this show will remember him from just a few weeks ago. Author Jerry Dealey, he's an historian, will be with him. Author Sherry Feaster, her shows are in the archives, www.nightfrightshow, forensics expert, CSI, who used 21st century crime scene techniques to find a frontal shot. Yeah, a frontal shot. Science proves a frontal shot. Finally, we have something to go on. Barry Ernest, Oswald expert, and he's an author, and our guest tonight, author David Mantic. He's a radiologist, and folks, you will find his show also in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com. And a brand new guest, and first time on the show, but definitely not the last, Douglas Horn from the Assassination Records Review Board. Dr. David Mantic is a board-certified radiation oncologist who previously served on the tenure-track physics facility at the University of Michigan. He has reviewed the JFK artifacts at the National Archives on nine separate occasions. Douglas Horn worked for the U.S. Navy for 20 years in various capacities and served as a senior analyst for three years for the Assassination Records Review Board, or abbreviated ARRB, and that was from 1995 to 1998, where he worked with the medical evidence and with records pertaining to Vietnam and Cuba policy. We're going to go there tonight because, 
As we all know, Fidel Castro has just passed away. In 2009, Doug published a five-volume book about the U.S. government's cover-up of the medical evidence in JFK's assassinations, titled Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. And once again, folks, all those links will be at the www.nightfrightshow.com. You'll be able to click on the book cover and order it from the comfort of your own home. Welcome to the show, David. Welcome to the show, Doug. Doug, how thank are you? Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be on your show for the first time. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Doug. And how are you, David? We're doing fine here. All right. Okay, let's jump in right away, shall we? Doug, can we talk about how the AA, the AARC, isn't that funny? <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. I understand. I might as well get it out of the way right now, because I have a friend who, uh, who works for them, uh, Alan Dale, you may know that name. Anyways, can you tell us how the ARRB came into existence and why? Well, sure. Briefly, uh, Oliver Stone's film in 1991, JFK, created a lot of controversy because it depicted a coup in America. So, of course, all the establishment types and the Warren Commission apologists didn't like the film. And at the end of the film, uh, he correctly stated in the credit role that the U.S. government was still withholding a lot of records related to the assassination uh, that were sealed. They were still classified and still sealed, particularly the House Select Committee on Assassinations. So that created uh, a demand by both sides of the debate to get the records released. The people that thought there would be no conspiracy uh, wanted the records released to prove their point, and the people that were sure there was a conspiracy and a cover-up wanted records released to prove their point. So Congress, for a variety of reasons, you know, there was a consensus that, yes, okay, we'll pass the JFK Records Act. It will require everybody, all the federal agencies, to release all records in full to the National Archives unless they want to withhold some of those records. And if they wanted to withhold some of the records, the Assassination Records Review Board was created uh, to be, number one, the enforcer to make sure they conducted searches, and number two, we would pass judgment on what was allowed to be, to remain redacted and what had to be released. So that was our job. So, Doug, tell me something. How did you become involved, and most importantly, did you have to get a top-secret security clearance? Because you're going to be looking at things that have to stay under the auspices of national security, if I'm not mistaken. I became involved by uh, reading every assassination book I could get my hands on for uh, about three decades, and then by basically uh, beating on the front door until they let me in. Uh, I had to submit myself to, I think it was six telephone interviews, and the, the hiring process took about six months. <clears throat> Uh, but I finally got hired uh, as a senior analyst on the military records team, and then uh, halfway through my three-year tour of duty, I got kicked upstairs and became the chief analyst for military records. So my gig there was Vietnam records, Cuba records, and primarily, well, at least 50% of the time, uh, medical evidence. Let's stay on the Cuba policy. And yes, and yes, I, sure. and yes, I had to. Uh, yes, I had to obtain a, a top-secret uh, compartmented. SCI, top secret SCI clearance when I was there, yes. Okay. Uh, did you have to battle them to release files? Uh, Things that you thought were okay? I, I didn't, I didn't have any problem with the, board, no, with the board members. The board members were an interesting group of people. None of the board members as individuals believed that there was a conspiracy to kill a president, uh, which is, was dismaying for me to find out when I went mm. to work there. But they all wanted to be heroes to their peer groups. So they all wanted to release as many records as possible and get them in the National Archives. So they were not sympathetic to agencies who wanted to keep records sequestered and secret. So they released everything they possibly could within the terms of the act. And there were a few things withheld that were related to sources and methods. But... Uh, <clears throat> It was the agencies that had trouble with the review board, not the staff. Uh, the agencies battled them quite often, and the review board uh, won almost every battle. And where they didn't win, they compromised. Did you have the support of the president at the time? 
Now, I think when it came into passing, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was Bush number one that was in power. But by the time the end came around, of course, it was Clinton. Did you have the, right. the full support uh, of both presidents? Uh, the second. Uh, Bush number mm -hmm. one, Poppy Bush, uh, threatened to veto the bill. But he was in a, a close election campaign with a guy named Bill Clinton. And he ended up not vetoing the bill because of that, I think. And then, uh, but once the names of the board members were submitted to the White House by the nominating societies uh, of the five board members, he withheld those names and would not give them to Bill Clinton. So he, he was not friendly to the cause. He didn't believe that documents should be released. So uh, Bill Clinton had to wait many, many months for their names to be re resubmitted to him and before he had time to submit them to the Senate for consideration and, and uh, ratification. And uh, Bill Clinton did provide our startup money, $250,000 of startup money. So I would say that he was uh, friendly to the board's mission. $250,000 doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, though, when you're talking about it's, the assassination. It's not, but the, but, our, but the total we spent in uh, four years was only $6 million. So if you're trying to hire staff and set yeah. up an office, and, and uh, it was money that they didn't have. Uh, oh, I see. But okay. once we started operating, we were an independent federal agency and answered to no one. We didn't answer to the president. We didn't answer to Congress. Really? Uh, we were a truly independent agency, which a lot of people were very uncomfortable with. Well, let me ask you this very quickly, Doug. Uh, I, are there files there right now that you felt should have been released that you have to remain quiet about? Yes. Uh, the, one, the one category that I know about personally are uh, tax records related to Lee Harvey Oswald. And when I say tax records, I mean earnings records. Anything to do with your earnings right. uh, are also called tax records. So uh, earnings records of Lee Harvey Oswald were identified as assassination records. Uh, they are withheld right now because of the way the JFK Act was written. It was written by Robert Blakey, who was in charge of the HSCA. So he wrote the draft act, and he got away with what he wanted because he wrote the act. So one of the things he put in there was uh, tax information cannot be released which is absurd for something that's uh, right now over 50 years old. So we identified some of these things as assassination records, but right now they can't be released unless the IRS code is amended to allow. All somebody would have to do is write a bill that says two things. That all the tax-related information previously identified by the ARRB as assassination records should be released in full. That's all the act would have to say. They could put that as a writer on another bill. And it could be done with a snap of, the, of your fingers. Mm -hmm. So there's something about Oswald that I know that I can't talk about, uh, and it would bothers it, me to this day. But there are certainly other subjects. Uh, it's suggestive of uh, of what he might have been doing before he went to the Soviet Union. Okay, That's gotcha. All I can say. Okay, so I'm going to interpret there, that. There are uh, there are many records still under seal. They're CIA records, and they are not cooperative at all with the archives, and they will surely ask the new president to not release them next year when he's supposed to and to withhold them forever. We'll have to see what the new president will do. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, that question, because we know Hillary had come out and said she was going to release, quote-unquote, the UFO files, and I thought, before you do that, maybe you should release the JFK files. That's just Yeah, really. Me. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. Okay, so I'm going to go on the assumption that Oswald was probably working in some capacity for the United States Intelligence Services and uh, before he went, to, um, went over to the Soviet Union. I'd like to bring David in. David, um, how were you approached to, to participate in this wonderful new documentary with all these great, great researchers, and kudos for you for, for getting in on that. That's fabulous. I think Doug was the introduction for me. I didn't know these folks, but Doug had met with them first and thought they would do a good job, so that's how I got started. So did you send Doug the check yet then, David? No, he hasn't <laughs> sent me one either. No, no this is all, uh, yeah, collegiality between Cooperative God, JFK no, I researchers. Know, I know. There Just, are some out there that cooperate with each other. Yeah. Imagine that. That can't be true. <laughs>
David, your expertise, of course, is the medical evidence that took place in the autopsy. There was some information in there I was not aware of, and that is when the x-rays were taken of JFK's brain, nobody ever talked about what shows up in the x-ray, and that is kind of a bullet fragment at the front of the brain. Can we talk about that? Because that was pretty alarming to me, because there's no mention of it, as you say, in the autopsy itself. But here it is, kind of miraculously just shows up in the front of the brain to prove that, well, to try to prove that there was a shot from the rear. Can we talk about that a little bit? Your listeners can find my peer-reviewed paper on this online. It's okay. free to the public. All they do have to do is type in a few words like Saga, S-A-G-A, J-F-K, and my name, Mantic. And it should pop up, as I just checked before we came on tonight. So that gives you a very, very good overview of this object. So let me tell you specifically where it is. If you look at the frontal x-ray of JFK, you see a nearly round, white-appearing object inside JFK's right orbit. And if you look at the lateral skull x-ray, I think most experts agree that the partner of this image should be on the back of the skull. The first thing that strikes here is that the 6.5 millimeter size is exact, exactly the same size as Oswald's supposed Manlinger Carcano. But historically, what's really striking is that no one at the autopsy ever mentioned this thing. Now, that's really bizarre, isn't it? Completely. After all, what's the purpose of taking x-rays at an autopsy? The purpose is to locate, quite precisely, metallic fragments that might relate to a bullet. And anybody who looks at this x-ray immediately is caught by this image. So to make this really obvious, when my son was six years old at the breakfast table one morning, we were looking at this x-ray. I said, Chris, can you find the bullet here? And so he walked over, he pointed right at it. And yet no one at the autopsy could locate this thing. Well, it gets even more ridiculous. My four-year-old daughter across the table hadn't seen what we were doing, had no training in radiology. And I said, can you come over here and find the bullet? So she looked at the picture and then she looked at me and she said, well, what's it supposed to look like? So I told her, well, it's supposed to be kind of white. She pointed at it immediately. So this is the same thing that no one at the autopsy could see. There was absolutely no discussion of it. It appeared only years later and um, the whole question then is, well, how have they missed this? Hmm. And today that question has never been answered by any official body. Your speculation, David, was it missed, quote-unquote, so, on purpose, or was it dialed in afterwards? Yeah, the, 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 the full and detailed answer to that is in this peer-reviewed article online, but the short answer is that it was added in the darkroom uh, very shortly after the autopsy, and the culprit was probably John Ebersol, the radiologist. Huh. Uh, John and I had several conversations the last time he called me back, <clears throat> and we had been talking for some time. This conversation has been recorded. It's available online. And when I finally asked him about this 6.5-millimeter object, um, he said, well, you know, I'm not feeling too well. In fact, he was dying from metastatic lung cancer. Very abruptly, at that very moment, the whole conversation ended. He would never talk about the, con the JFK assassination again. That was the last time anyone had a chance to speak to him. Sounds like there's... And if I might add please, something here in that. support of uh, Dr. Manick, uh, I had seen his presentations on his ongoing research into the skull x-rays at several JFK symposia. Mm -hmm. And I had videotapes of two of his presentations. And while on the staff, I showed them to the general counsel, Jeremy Gunn. This is the man who conducted our 10 medical depositions. He was so persuaded that this was real science, this optical densitometry that David did in the National Archives, that he, uh, he had me ask Dr. Manick to prepare a list of questions for the three pathologists 
when we took their depositions. So the primary question for each doctor, I mean, Dr. Mantic had a long list, but the primary question to each of them was, did you see this bright, apparently metallic object that's on the x-ray today? Did you see this when you examined that x-ray at the autopsy? And all three men under oath unequivocally said, they independently, uh, at different dates, without knowing what the other one said, they all said no. They didn't say, I don't remember. They didn't say, I'm not sure. They all three said no. And it was one of the few times where they gave precise and definitive answers to questions. So not only are they, as the fragment not mentioned in the autopsy report or in the Warren Commission testimony of Dr. Humes or of Dr. Ebersole, but uh, in the recent depositions taken by the review board, they were asked about it specifically. And all three men said, no, we did not see that apparent bullet fragment on the uh, AP skull x-ray at the autopsy. I'm going to put this next question back to David. David, is it normal procedure in an autopsy to take the x-rays before the autopsy begins or afterwards? Oh, before, so that Always you before, don't... Always before, right. So yeah, you if you take it afterwards, right? you don't know what you're seeing. That right. The body will have been disturbed by then. Would it have been normal procedure then in that case for them to have taken that fragment out and used it as evidence? Oh, sure. And they did, in fact, remove two much smaller fragments from the front of the skull. That was the whole point of the x-rays. And so those two they took out, and the reason they took those two out were because they were really the two largest ones on the x-rays. Hmm. That 6.5 millimeter thing was a fake that wasn't there, it was added later. I want to talk about the integrity of evidence, and I'm going to go back to Doug on this. Now, was there ever an evidence custody sheet or anything of that nature where things would be listed and numbers assigned, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? There were some uh, crude and simplistic lists made at the autopsy of total numbers of x-rays and and of total numbers of photographs. But uh, when one interviewed later, the two x-ray technicians, it was clear that they took six x-rays of the skull, and there's only three listed, three skull x-rays listed in the receipt trail. So there's something wrong there. And Dr. Ebersoil, by the way, confirmed that to Dr. Mantic. In yeah, this these are independent interview. recollections. Independent right. recollections from the radiologist yes. versus the, the yes. radiation therapist. First-person witness. That's a good... That's a good point. And similarly, although there are uh, numbers of photographs listed, uh, total numbers listed at the autopsy, uh, if you talk to Floyd Raby, who was the photographer's assistant, there are many, many, many more photographs taken than are in the total on the listings. Uh, so, uh, yes, there are numbers that exist, but there are reasons to doubt them. And in fact, uh, for my, I'll just finish the answer Please. by saying this. Uh, I did a study uh, in my book, in chapter four, I believe, the end of chapter four on the autopsy photos. I studied all the testimony anyone had ever given uh, in a sworn interview or an unsworn interview about what photographs they saw taken at the autopsy. This is Warren Commission testimony, House Select Committee interviews, and then the review board. And it looks like there are as many as 18 different views of the body taken that are missing from the official collection. And when I say view, I mean 18 general views. Usually for one view, there would be two black and white negatives and four or five color transparencies for one view. So if you multiply 18 times six, that's a lot of missing photographs. It sure is. You think they've been destroyed? Have you been able to, to find traces of them anywhere or records of them anywhere that perhaps they've been destroyed? Because we know the Secret Service dumped a lot of files right after well, they were told Well, we have to. the testimony of Quentin Schwinn, who mm -hmm. I believe first contacted you, Doug, didn't he? That's right, in 2010, right. Or the recollections. And, and Well, first of all, there are no official records of destroyed photos, but right. there are so many people that are credible witnesses that say, I know these images were taken. I was there when the flashbulb went off. I directed that it be taken, that kind of thing, that we can believe what they said. And uh, one witness came forward in uh, 2010 who was shown one of the images that's not in the official collection today, which showed uh, the top of the head intact, which it is not intact in the autopsy photographs, completely intact, the right side of the head intact, and showed a small entrance wound high in the forehead, well above the right eye. And he... Uh, he was shown this photograph by his 
photography instructor at Rochester Institute of Technology who happened to work for the HSCA. Huh. So uh, I, I evaluated this man's character for like almost three years before I decided that I believed him. I made him produce his college transcripts and produce proof that he was this place and that place, and I finally decided that he was a credible witness. And so he has seen a crucial photograph uh, before this tampering was done on the body prior to the start of the autopsy, which is another story we should get into, uh, that is not in the official collection. Now, Doug, you, you sent me this uh, artist sketch. It's a reproduction of what he remembered, and uh, I'm yes. looking at it right now on my computer screen. So I... Uh, reproduced this in my ebook, JFK's Head Wounds, which you can purchase on Amazon. I think it's in some of your work too, isn't it, Doug? Uh, not in my book, unfortunately. Uh, oh, okay. But uh, so I'm glad it's in your book. Yeah. So it's there in my ebook, uh, JFK's Head Wounds. Uh, you purchase it at Amazon. Okay, folks, we're talking about a brand new documentary that's just out. And it's called A Coup in Camelot, www.nightfrightshow.com. You'll find a link to it there. You can order it from the comfort of your own home. It's on iTunes, Amazon Video Direct, Google Play, and Vimeo On Demand. Our guests tonight, and two of the people that are authentic researchers, I guess you could say for sure, with their question in the video, Dr. David Mantic and Douglas Horn from the Assassinations Record Review Board. And, of course... Fans of this show will know Dr. David Mantic as a radiologist and expert on the x-rays and medical evidence uh, that were part of the autopsy of JFK's um, autopsy. Let's go back for a second because this has opened up a whole new set of, of realms. How did they get the body off the airplane, Air Force One? Because essentially most people believe that the body was altered before it went to the autopsy at Bethesda. So that would require the body either being altered on the airplane, which I don't believe happened, or it would require the body being taken off the airplane and then taken to another place where it would be altered. I'd like to address that if I can. <laughs> Please go ahead, Doug. Okay. I'll make this as short as I can. I know, you know, we only have limited time. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, and I, for that matter, I know Dr. Mantic uh, concurs with me, that these wounds were tampered with severely before the start of the official autopsy at 8 o'clock p.m. The question is where and when. Hmm. It's my conclusion that the wounds were tampered with right there in the same building, at Bethesda Naval Hospital, after it arrived at 6.35 p.m. And that's documented in a document, by the way. So between 6.35 p.m. and 8 o'clock p.m., which is the official start time, yes, during that almost 90-minute period, that's the key to understanding why the autopsy photographs don't match in any way what the Dallas medical witnesses reported. Uh, the throat wound is completely changed in character, and the head wound especially is massively changed in character and size and location. And uh, I believe that all of that happened at Bethesda. And the reason I do is there's no time in the timeline for it to have happened anywhere else. That airplane landed at six o'clock at Andrews Air Force Base, Air Force One. The wheels were on the blocks at 1804. President Johnson made a, some brief remarks and then all the lights went out. The whole place went black and they cut the TV coverage. From the time the TV lights went out, there was just barely enough time with maybe one or two minutes to spare for a helicopter to fly from Andrews Air Force Base to the Officers Club parking lot at Bethesda. And uh, I believe that's what happened. Uh, and uh, I, we do know for a fact, though, that JFK's body showed up at 6.35 p.m. in the wrong kind of vehicle, a black hearse, in the wrong kind of casket, a gray shipping casket. It arrived 20 minutes before the motorcade from Andrews Air Force Base arrived. So what this all means, it's a complicated story. I would recommend that people watch the documentary and then read my book uh, or, and read Best Evidence, too, as far as that goes, by David Lifton. The point is that there was a shell game with the president's body, but that it was being manipulated for 90 minutes before the autopsy started, and there wasn't time for it to go anywhere else. Do you think it was done in the same autopsy room and they just a little bit of smoke and mirrors and a little shuffle here and there? I believe it was. There are other people that doubt that because they are uncomfortable with some of the background objects in the photographs. But uh, right. the fact that the body's head is supported in a metal head brace, which was never used, 
and during the autopsy. Doesn't appear in the x-rays? Doesn't appear in any no. reports that I've spoken to either? Right. Well, but the uh, radiologist, the radiological technician said they put the head on a blanket, that they didn't use the head brace when the x-rays were taken of the skull. So Custer said they put the head on a rolled-up blanket. So that would explain why the head brace isn't shown in the skull x-rays. But uh, all of, most of the autopsy photographs show the head in this metal head brace. They had the capability there to use that head brace in that morgue. They just didn't normally use it, and they certainly didn't use it after 8 o'clock. So I conclude that most of the autopsy photographs, the ones that all show this head brace used to support the head, uh, were taken before 8 o'clock, immediately after the wounds were tampered with to remove metal from the cranium and to expand the throat wound. So uh, I believe it all happened at Bethesda. There are many reasons to support my conclusion, which we don't have time to go into tonight. Yeah, and you do have Unless eyewitnesses. You, you have eyewitnesses from the morgue who support your view as well, and I totally agree with you. Uh, yeah, there's Mr. O'Connor and um, Dennis David, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And James Jenkins now. James Jenkins and, now. Yeah, I forgot his yes. name. Yeah, and I had uh, Hugh Clark on several weeks ago. He was one of the honor guard people. He was very upset, thinking that he had had the wool pulled over his eyes. He actually believed that he was carrying the body of the president that night. He was quite upset about it because it's a matter of, of integrity, honor for these people, and here they are being used as pawns. Okay, folks, we're talking about Douglas Horn tonight and Dr. David Mantic. Of course, we're talking about the Kennedy assassination, body alterations, and also the autopsy anomalies, and they are plethora. Just wanted to let you know, a couple of times we've mentioned the HSCA. What that is is the House Select Committee on assassinations that was put together in the late 70s and its conclusion very quickly is a probable conspiracy in the JFK assassination and the Martin Luther King assassination that was their final conclusion a probable conspiracy now they were supposed to keep going with that and nail that down to either a yes or a no and oddly enough the money never became available isn't that interesting? So just to let you know what the HSCA is, we've mentioned. Also, we just mentioned David Lifton, Best Evidence, as fans of the show will know. He was just on last week. You can find those shows, and they are explosive. He talks about new evidence and his new book called Final Charade. And you could reach that at www.nightfrightshow.com, as long as with all the links that we're talking about tonight. No worries there. That'll be your central focal point for all those links, so you don't have to worry about memorizing. Let's go back to the autopsy room. Is there any way of knowing who was in that autopsy room? For years, we've heard the rumors that, of course, General Curtis LeMay was. And I want to keep on LeMay after and talk about his little, um, how should I put it, jet to Canada the day of the autopsy? Right. Uh, yeah, the day of the uh, murder. Can we talk a little bit first, though? Was Is there any evidence sure. at all of General LeMay being uh, in the autopsy? The only, uh, the, there's, there's, uh, the only direct evidence is the eyewitness testimony of Paul O'Connor. I say testimony. It wasn't sworn, but, I mean, mm -hmm. he told me and several others that in interviews. Uh, and he was one of the two autopsy technicians, one of the two Navy corpsmen assisting the pathologists. Uh, but one piece of evidence we did come across at the review board supports the possibility that it was there in terms of timeline. It's, it's a fascinating mm -hmm. document. The Chuck Holmes logbook is a logbook from the air wing at Andrews Air Force Base, a special logbook they kept for two purposes. It was started the day JFK was assassinated and they made many log entries about the arrival of the airplane, etc. And then it was put away and used again when RFK was assassinated and when he was flown to Washington. And then it was sequestered. And when we put out a dragnet search for assassination records, we had the Pentagon do it for us. Uh, this logbook was turned in. Hmm. And it, it shows clearly that uh, a plane was sent to Toronto to pick up Air Force Chief of Staff Curtis LeMay, possibly President Kennedy's number one or maybe number two enemy in government. You know, I think his number one enemy out of government would have been Alan Dulles. Number one enemy in government would have been LeMay. In the middle of its flight, the airplane was diverted to another location in Canada called Wyerton, <laughs> which I believe you'll, you're qualified to address and, and to the listeners in just a moment. Uh, 
So the airplane picked him up at Wyerton and then flew him back to Washington. Well, while the airplane was en route to Washington, D.C., the Secretary of the Air Force ordered LeMay to land at Andrews Air Force Base and pay the respects to the president's body and to be there to meet the new president, Lyndon Johnson. And uh, LeMay refused. The astounded uh, people keeping the log were using underlinings and boldings. And uh, they said, his airplane will not, repeat, not go to Andrews. It will go to DCA Airport, which is the National Airport at Washington, D.C. And the National Airport at Washington, D.C., anybody will know, is right across the river from the National Mall, where the Capitol is, and uh, close to the White House. One place isn't that much farther away, and that's Bethesda Naval Hospital. So. Mm. And he landed at DCA Airport against the orders of the Secretary of the Air Force, his nominal superior, about 40 minutes before the autopsy started. Something like that. I'm doing this from memory, but well ahead of time. So it is possible, based on this timeline that, we, that is now documented in an official record book, that what Paul O'Connor said is true, that he was at the autopsy. And this base, folks, was a World War II base that we used to train commandos at, um, special forces. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Devil's Brigade, we would bring folks up. Uh, that was the first special forces unit, uh, half Canadian, half American. And these were the uh, predecessors to the Green Berets, I guess you could say. And these were tough guys. <laughs> these were tough guys, man. So and I believe, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that the James, Bo the James Bond author, Ian Fleming, is one of the commandos who trained at that base during World War II. Exactly right. You know your stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was another spy base called Camp X, which is actually closer to where I live in Kingston. But this particular base, of course, was more secluded. And this is where they would do their commando training, the actual uh, training to kill people, etc., etc., explosive things along those natures. And, and it's, it's, it's very peculiar, in my view, that LeMay's biographer put forth a uh, a misstatement of fact in his biography and said he was hunting in Michigan yeah. and the president was assassinated. <laughs> that is not true. Yeah. It's now proven by these records that he was picked up from a commando base in Canada. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so either he lied to all of his associates and then they told the biographer what they knew, which was what LeMay told them. That's probably the most likely. I presume that LeMay lied to his family and lied to his friends and that they passed the lie on to his biographer. But what's in the biography is not true. Doug, could you give a brief overview of who General LeMay was, just so folks that are unaware of sure. who this character is? Well, he was a bona fide uh, hero of sorts from World War II, uh, who was... Uh, an air commander of our B-17 bombers operating out of England against Germany during World War II and turned what was a disastrous start to that operation in 42 and 43 into a very successful bombing campaign. He earned the nickname Iron Ass by threatening to court-martial anybody who turned back. Anybody who turned back and said, my airplane's not working or, or whatever, that you would be court-martialed. So, and led people into battle himself. So he was highly decorated Air Force war leader for the Army Army Air Corps, and then he was transferred to the Pacific, invented the firebombing campaign of Japanese cities from low altitude, because up until that time, the B-29 bombing campaign had been a failure. Uh, so that bombing campaign from the Marianas Islands, Saipan, Tinian, and Guam, LeMay turned it into a low altitude mass murder with firebombing, and we destroyed basically 67 Japanese cities, I believe, 50% or more destroyed 67 cities. So to him, dropping the A-bomb was just another one on the list. It wasn't anything special. And in fact, LeMay has often said that dropping the A-bomb had nothing to do with Japan's surrender. LeMay built the Strategic Air Command into the world's most lethal killing fleet in the 1950s. And he was a popular person and even had a movie made about him uh, starring Jimmy Stewart. I was thinking of Dr. Strangelove, sorry. Well, yeah, and uh, he's one of the characters in Dr. Strangelove. He's basically the George C. Scott character and yeah. the uh, the crazy general who launched the war and Dr. Strangelove was, was his deputy at SAC was Thomas Power. Yeah. Uh, so LeMay was at odds with Kennedy about everything and in fact they gave dueling speeches so to wind up this answer LeMay uh, was fond of saying that there was a Pax Atomica in the world and that it had been brought to the world by his bombers. There was Pax Romana under the Romans you know, by force, and that there was a Pax Atomica created by his bombers. And so President Kennedy in his peace speech in June 63 said, we're not going to have a Pax Americana levied on the world by American weapons of war. Uh, so that, that they even were dueling with each other in speeches, which was really interesting. And he also ran as a running mate with George Wallace. I think it was in the 1968 uh, election. 
And that's correct. Yeah, and he he thought that a first strike against the Soviet Union was inevitable, and they might as well get it over with, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, right, he felt that it was inevitable all throughout the fifties. Yeah, uh, was in favor of it, as were many other people. Eisenhower said no to it twice, I believe. It was recommended to Kennedy in nineteen sixty one by the Joint Chiefs. Mm-hmm. He got mad and walked out of the meeting. Yeah, so, yeah, LeMay probably uh, really wanted to do that during the missile crisis. We know that Thomas Power did. The the man who was in charge of SAC, his hand-picked replacement, uh, wanted to first strike the Soviet Union during the missile crisis. So that's LeMay and Kennedy. Kennedy hated to be in the room with him and would often tell his aides, keep me away from that man. I can't stand to be with him. Yeah, Sorensen told me some stuff about him, too, and uh, he was no fan of, of General LeMay either. Nothing at all. Right. Had no use for him. Let's go back to David. David, let's talk some more about some of the autopsy anomalies. Now, we're looking at a throat wound that started off in Parkland Hospital. It's just a little petite incision in order to get a tracheotomy tube down JFK's throat. And all of a sudden, we it shows up at the autopsy room, and this thing is just gouged open three, four inches wide. How does that happen? Your, your listeners will want to look at the documentary. This is illustrated very well in the yeah. documentary. Yeah, Ebersol in particular, John Ebersol, the radiologist, the, the autopsy was quite aghast at what he saw. He basically said he had never seen anything like that. The folks who saw it might have speculated that there was a bullet hidden in there somewhere and they may have gone looking for it. And uh, there's some circumstantial evidence uh, that somebody did that. There was blood on the clothes of Roy Kellerman, for example, and Doug probably knows this story better than I do. But I think Doug and I are both quite convinced that something something had changed a lot between Parkland and Bethesda. Right. Specifically, uh, ahead, the the throw wound the throw wound in Dallas was uh, three to four millimeters wide, about the width of a pencil, and <laughs> it was an inward traveling puncture. It did not have jagged torn edges as an exit wound would have had. It was a puncture going in. So all the medical staff in Dallas, without any exceptions, who saw it before the tracheotomy incision was made, said that's obviously it's a classic bullet entrance wound. They didn't know where the bullet went, but they knew it was an entrance wound. Uh, Two and a half to three centimeters wide only. That's only about an inch. Dr. Crenshaw stated on national television, he was a resident at Parkland Hospital. He stated that on national television in 1992 on ABC that uh, when the breathing tube was removed from the president's neck from the tracheostomy incision after death, the wound closed of its own volition. And once again, it just looked like a neat entrance wound. There was no gaping open wound. When Dr. Crenshaw looked at the autopsy photographs from Bethesda, taken six hours later, he said this wound has been tampered with. No doctor would make an incision like this. He said Dr. Perry was a master with the blade, and he would not have made a sloppy, enormous incision like this. And so he was convinced that the wound he saw in the autopsy photographs had been tampered with. And I mean, it either happened on the airplane, which I once wondered about, or it happened at Bethesda following the body's arrival. And I now believe it happened at Bethesda. At the same time, the head wounds were opened up to remove metal from the brain. I, uh, Dennis David, I'll make this brief. Dennis David no was a petty officer at Bethesda Naval Hospital. He saw photographs taken of the president's body the week after the assassination. They were shown to him by William Pitzer, who was the head of audiovisual at Bethesda. Right. Some of those photographs showed uh, the president, and I would say the state he arrived in, with a hole in his throat, not a big gash, with the top of his head intact, not all cut open. Uh, and so because he saw those photographs, and he's a very credible witness uh, in, a, in many, many respects. I've come to the conclusion that it's more likely than not that the same people who altered the head wounds just to get metal out of the cranium were the same people who probably altered the throat wound. As David said, we don't know for sure. I've always been under the impression that that was a, an entrance wound, the wound in the neck I'm talking about, folks. And oh, it was, yes. And there was never any bullet found, so I suspect that following this scenario, they cut it open to remove the bullet to take away any... Um, doubt that there was more than one shooter except for Lee Harvey Oswald from behind. There's another... I concur 100%. There's another possibility for the show that I I have proposed. Um, We, at least most of us who are believers in conspiracies, suspect there were shots from the front, 
and we suspect that uh, on, on good evidence, based mm -hmm. on that, we believe that a bullet went through the windshield and probably produced a lot of fine glass fragments. So th that wound could have been caused by a glass fragment, which would have been very difficult to find, would not have been seen on x-rays. And here's another clue that that might have occurred. When they were embalming the, the head, uh, mm -hmm. they found that um, fluid was leaking from several small holes in JFK's uh, cheek. Really? Yes. And so right. how, how in the oh. world did that happen unless there were some additional tiny glass fragments that produced those little holes? We know that when, when something like that happens, the glass fragments come out in a very narrow cone. And so if they hit JFK, they would not have hit anyone else, only him. And they've got to be traveling at a very, very high velocity yes, in order indeed. to penetrate yes. the skin and make holes, right? And we know that there was a contusion, that his blood was seen um, probably along that same trail at the back of the lung, at the top of the lung. So that contusion may have been caused by that same glass fragment. That's right. The contusion was reportedly, uh, after the lung was removed, the, the contusion, the bruise was at the top of the pleural dome. It wasn't on the lung itself. It was, according to Dr. Humes, it was on the, at the top of the pleural dome. And didn't go through the posterior uh, pleura. It just stopped there. So that would be, that's what a glass fragment would do. It wouldn't travel very far. I'm looking at the time. We've only got mm, six minutes left, approximately. And I got to get to the head, the fatal headshot. The back of JFK's head's been blown out. Now, everybody, I had brought Dr. Uh, Robert McClelland on the show, and he swears up and down that the back of JFK's head was blown out completely, which means a frontal shot, the exit coming through the back of the head. There's no such bullet that's ever been made that goes in the back of the head and does a U-turn and then comes right back out. I mean, that would be the Cirque du Soleil bullet, never mind the magic bullet. So, given that, how did they cover up those photos, David? How did they, you know, because there's a photo that I use all the time. Um, Dr. McClellan has made a hand sketch of the back of JFK's head, and he shows approximately where the hole in the back of JFK's head is, which is the lower right quadrant, folks. And um, there's an autopsy photo that's supposed to be the back of JFK's head that shows it fully intact. Right. Your, your speculation on that, David? Well, I took a long a stereo viewer to the archives to look at these images. The reason I did that is because if that particular area was faked in to cover up a hole, and it was faked in the same way on two partner images, then I would not see a 3D effect in, in specifically that area. Whereas in the authentic area surrounding it, I would see a 3D effect. Hmm. And that's exactly what I saw. Robert Groden, who's much more of a photographic expert than I am, have had discussions about that, and he tells me he saw exactly the same thing. Is that right? Yeah, Robert Groden shows in the, in the archives as well, folks. Okay, what's your speculation, Doug? Well, I now agree with Dr. Manick. At the time I wrote my book, I, that was 2009, I leaned toward the likelihood that the back-of-the-head photos were in, showed in tax scalp because a lot of the scalp might have been dramatically rearranged, you know, cut away from the, carefully cut away from the cranium and rearranged and just held in place for three minutes while they took pictures hmm. to try to prove there was no hole in the back of the head. But I, I respect what Dr. Mantic did with his stereoscopic viewer. And the problem is the review board didn't think to do that. And uh, unfortunately, I think Jeremy Gunn and I were in the mode of trusting the HSCA. I mean, the, the HSCA wrote that its photographic consultant panel viewed the autopsy photographs stereoscopically and didn't note any problems. I discussed this particular issue with Robert Groden, who was there. He made it very clear to me that Robert Blakey had no idea what stereoscopic viewing was all about. Really? He wow. was totally ignorant of it. And Robert's, Robert's wow. observations totally agreed with mine. So there you wow. go, cooperation. They just, they just made it uh, up. Yeah, they just yeah. made it up. And so, and they so had that, to. Uh, what else can they do? Yeah, they said something that's right. else, so, the game yeah. would be up. This is a critical the game would be up. Mm. Yeah. They have to they have they have to make a choice. So they went Because the whole way. game of the HSCA was to blame Oswald for all the wounds. And uh they had to admit that there'd been a frontal shot 
because the acoustic science forced them into the saying that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they still wanted to have their cake and ate it too, and so they said Oswald still killed all the, killed the killed the president and wounded the governor, and that no one else did, and that the shot from the front missed. So Robert Blakey is responsible for all that. Him and Michael Bodden. How many bullets do you think hit President Kennedy? Um, we'll start off with David. How's that? And we'll end with Doug. Well, Doug was the first one to propose that there were three headshots. And it took me a while to come around to his point of view. So we've both been influencing each other in subtle ways. In some respects, I I almost disregarded his initial proposal as too preposterous, and I let it go for a while. And then I followed the evidence independently. You know, there have to be three headshots. I cannot explain what happened here short of that. And so in the end, we've come to almost perfect agreement on three headshots, two from the front and one from the rear. And uh, That's correct. Other shots, you've got another one going through the throat, another one in the back that doesn't come out either, doesn't go into Connolly. Yeah, I think bullet. we both agree on that. Yeah. That's uh, right. Okay, so we've got four shots hitting Kennedy? Well, we, we say five. Three headshots. Five. Three headshots. Oh, three headshots. My mistake. Okay. Three headshots, two, uh, two from the front, one in the throat. Uh, one uh, one body shot in the so three shots hitting him from the front and two shots hitting him from behind one in the back of the head and one in the upper back i oh. discussed this in great detail with a very detailed table as well in my ebook uh, jfk's head wounds for people who are interested i can't believe we're out of time gentlemen <laughs> this has been fantastic you guys got to come back you know that you have a home here now doug you know that and you too david okay Anytime. thank you you're both welcome anytime. Folks, our guest tonight, author David Mantic. He's a great JFK researcher, radiologist. Douglas Horn from the Assassination Records Review Board. He's also got a book out called, as I scroll down to try and find it, and he's, can you tell us the name of your book, Doug? Inside the Assassination Records, Records Review Board. Board. The first four volumes are about the medical cover-up, and the fifth Volume is the who and the why. The documentary they're both in, along with several other researchers that will be here next week and the week after, A Coup in Camelot, the award-winning documentary on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, available on iTunes, Amazon Video Direct, Google Play, and Vimeo On Demand. There's the music. I want to thank you all again for joining us. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you next time. witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.